Let me say that when uh, sometimes I come across a real conflict in what a congregation expects from preaching. Some people say, we want the preaching to be spiritual and to be meaty and to be biblical, and we don't want to hear about current issues or even our problems. We want to hear about God. And I think you can see, you can see the, the, the truth in that and the desire behind it. But others will say the very opposite. We want to see how the Bible is relevant to today and how it applies to the issues that we face today. We don't want to use religion as a drug to forget. The trouble is that with both those positions, if, they just, if they're just taken on their own, they're both wrong because when you take the Bible and when you teach the Bible, it applies to every situation. We have a, a mantra which kind of goes like this, that you don't need to make the Bible relevant, it is relevant. Very often what we do, uh, even when, when we're trying to make the Bible relevant, is we make, it, we make it irrelevant. But here we have in the passage that we read, a passage that deals with money, with taxes, with marriage and sex. It deals with heaven and it is teaching from God, teaching from Jesus about Jesus and about God. And that's because whenever you are looking at God's Word, it is holistic. It is not just about theological speculation and fine words about God, but nor is it just about go out and do certain things. If your faith ignores God and the eternal, then it's worthless. But if it ignores, if it ignores where we are at the present, then it's worthless as well. I remember preaching in a church where uh, it was a fairly substantial congregation in the morning and an even bigger one at night because it was in a culture and an area where people, more people went to church at night than in the morning. And I remember the minister saying to me after the evening service, my folks will have hated that, which was always an encouraging thing to hear. Uh, and he said, I said, I loved it, but he says, they'll have hated it. And I said, Why? He said, because, he says, most of them are not Christians, and they want you to preach a hellfire sermon so that, like Jonathan Edwards, you've got them roasting over this pit of hell on a spit. And I said, why would they want that if they're not Christians? He says, because it's like a, a horror movie for them, and they just get really scared, and then they go away, and they go, wow, that was good preaching. That's good old-fashioned free, free church preaching, you know. And he said, what you did wasn't that. He said, but I said, it was, I hope it was biblical. He said, of course it was biblical. But what people, are, what people sometimes want in preaching is very different from what the Word of God gives us. But as you look at this passage, we'll see, as I say, the two key, two key questions that are very important. And you may not think the first one is that important, but uh, I, I do think it is. It's first is about Christians and the state. If you look at verse 13, <coughs> the Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus to catch him in his words. It's a trap. The Pharisees opposed Rome. The Roman Empire was controlling Israel at that time. The Pharisees opposed Rome. The Herodians supported Rome. They were natural enemies. And yet the thing that brought them together was their hatred of Jesus Christ. Men of different opinions will often unite in opposing Christ. Let me make an observation here that I think is hard for people to accept. Many Christians believe what our culture tells us, 
when people say, oh, I like Jesus, it's just Christians I don't like, or it's just the church I don't like. And we fall into that trap because people don't like Jesus. When people come up in front of the real Christ, they don't like what Christ has to say. And sometimes there can be the most vehement opposition towards Jesus Christ, and he himself said, if they hate me, they will hate you also. And sometimes that's just the way it is, being a Christian. You can expect people to have a hatred against you. Look at verse 13, there's flattery. They come to him and they say, teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. We know that you tell the truth. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men. You pay no attention to who they are. So they come to Jesus and they're saying, Jesus, you're a great guy. You're a great teacher. You're fearless. Now they say, tell us, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And it's a trick question. The situation was this. Southern Palestine had become a Roman province which needed troops to govern it. The governor took a a census, a man called Cyrenius, to base his tax upon it. There was a man with the wonderful name of Judas the Golanite. Judas was quite a common name in that culture. Judas the Golanite. And he started a campaign, taxation is slavery. It's a bit like the American Revolution. You know, no taxation without representation and so on. So the Romans killed him. There were three taxes... A ground tax, you paid a tenth of all the grain and one-fifth of the wine and fruit or money equivalent. There was an income tax, which to me sounds great, of 1%. And there was a poll tax on all men from age 14 to 65. And I've no idea why, but all women from age 12 to 65. So women paid more tax. Uh, I don't. Maybe they thought that women matured younger, which they do. So they had to pay tax more. And again, that actually seems a pretty good government policy. Um, they, the, the tax was a poll tax. The literal word is census. Now, the reason this was a trick question for Jesus is, if he said yes, the nationalists would reject him. It's a bit like Jesus uh, being around today and the Scottish nationalists coming and saying, is it Scotland's oil? Well, how do you, how do you answer that question? And before you start, because there's one or two nationalists here and there's one or two anti-nationalists here, that's not the issue at stake. It was a trick question. If he said yes, the nationalists would reject him. If he said no, he would be in trouble with the Romans. How he answered was a model for us all. He did not walk into the trap. He knew their hypocrisy. Now, incidentally, I'm not saying that if you question Jesus that you're a hypocrite, but I'm saying that there is a right kind of questioning. These people, though, were hypocrites. They were hiding behind a mask. They were trying to get Jesus into trouble. And how he answered was brilliant. He asked for a coin, and you'll notice, incidentally, he didn't have one. He didn't carry money. They gave him the coin, a denarius. It's a small silver Roman coin, about the size of a 5p piece that was worth about 10 pence. On it, it was like you have the queen's head. There was Caesar's head adorned with a a laurel leaf, and on the back there was a, a picture of his mother. Caesar liked his mother. He had a picture of his mother on the back, inscribed with the Latin words, Tiberius Caesar Divi Augustu Fallusus Augustus Pontifex Maximus. And those of you who are Latin scholars will basically know that's just him saying all his names and titles. 
But what was important about that was he set himself up as an emperor, kind of emperor cult. By the way, uh, I'm not being anti-Catholic, but it's one of the titles of the Pope, where he calls himself Pontifus Maximus, because the, the Bishop of Rome eventually took on the titles of the Roman Empire, and that's one of the reasons that we think that that's wrong, that it's not stemming from the Bible, it's stemming from the politics of the time. But here, it's, there was the myth of an emperor cult, and uh, the religious Jews were bothered about this. They were bothered that they would have a coin with Caesar's name or picture on it. Yet, of course, in asking for the coin, Jesus shows that they actually had one. Jesus gave an answer to them, which was, in effect, look at the coin, whose picture's on it? It's Caesar's, it belongs to Caesar. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Now, in answering that, Jesus, by the way, gave us some very basic principles about how we live in our state where so much of the state may be opposed to Christianity. I think that for those of you who are younger, you are going to grow up in a very different world from the world that I grew up in, which is going to be far more hostile to Christianity. And if you're going to be a Christian, you may have to pay an incredible price. Not the price of the poor pastor in Iran just now who is on death row, who is refusing to renounce his faith, but maybe a different kind of price where people can lose their jobs, people can be discriminated against because of their Christian faith. And some Christians want to say, well, we don't want anything to do with the state. But we enjoy the benefits of the state. We are to pay our taxes and to do so without moaning and grudging it. Caesar's stamp is upon the coins which you use. The queen's stamp is upon the coins which we use. It's the government has done all that, and um, we may not like a lot of the things that the government does, but we have to pay our taxes. And uh, I would suggest, by the way, that one of the problems with our culture at the moment is from the very top of the society to the very bottom, there's an attitude which says, if we can get away without paying our taxes, let's do so. So you cheat on expenses and things like that. Well, Jesus says, no, you've got to be, if you're going to be faithful to God, you've got to be a good citizen of the state. But the real sting in what he says is this. You give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but you give to God what is God's. Because there's another stamp. There's Caesar's stamp on his coin, but there's another stamp on you and that is the stamp of God himself upon every human being. And we do not give to the state what is God's. For the persecuted church that would receive this letter, it would have great consequences. They are being told by Jesus, do not give to Caesar's what is God's. Don't worship Caesar. Don't bow down before Caesar. Don't even give a Uh, It was a phrase in the early church, do not even give a pinch of incense to Caesar's statue. There are Christians today who suffer because they refuse to bow down to pictures of kings and dictators, because they refuse to go along with the rules and the regulations of the society in which they live. 1 Peter chapter 2 
And verse 13 says this, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. We show respect to those who are in authority. We pray for those who are in authority. Again, in our culture, it's popular to be deeply, deeply cynical about every kind of politician and just to make fun of them. But we in the church, we are told to pray, first of all, for kings and those in authority. And we do that. But sometimes the state will make demands upon us that we cannot accept. Um, I'm going to ask you to pray for something in particular. Uh, Gordon Wilson, who uh, is part of this congregation, was a former head of the Scottish Nationalist Party. And he and I have prepared a submission to the Scottish government on the same-sex marriage situation. Um, it, I, I think what he has written is absolutely excellent, and we will hope to put that out in the middle of this week and just look for it online at the Solas website and so on. But it's very brave for a politician in, in our culture to say that you are opposed to same-sex marriage because the state is, is saying... Um, no, this is going to happen. Even though they call it a consultation, it's going to happen, and these will be the consequences. And I just read last night, actually, a conservative MP saying that if churches refuse to do same-sex marriages, then we should be banned from doing marriages at all. And that is really quite horrendous. Now, I'm not saying in all of this, by the way, having, having now dug myself into this hole... Uh, I'm not going to start going on about homosexuality. I'm saying I'm not what I um, totally despise is any form of, of homophobia. And uh, if you were a homosexual and you're here, you're very, very welcome. But marriage is not between a man and a man. Marriage is between a man and a woman. And that's what the Bible says. And it says it for a very good reason. God has made us. God has created us. And he knows what is best for us. The state has no right to redefine marriage. The state has no right to tell us what marriage is when God has already done so. So Jesus is saying there, the state, to the, he's saying to the Herodians and to the Pharisees, you have a responsibility to the state. You have a responsibility as good citizens. But the state also has a responsibility. And it's a responsibility that... Uh, when Christians find themselves having to choose between the law of God and the law of the state, then you will choose the law of God. And inevitably, at some point, there will be conflict. Now, in the history of the Christian church, there have been also various approaches to this, but I think the basic New Testament one was simply that if you go against the state, you do not use force, but you prepare to suffer for your faith. And I refer back again to that Iranian pastor. Can you imagine him sitting in his cell right now? He has a document in front of him, which all he has to do is sign and renounce his Christian faith, and he will not be killed. But if he doesn't do that, then he's told that he is going 
to be killed. Can you, can you imagine how you would cope with that and how you would deal with that? I'm not sure how I would cope or how I would deal with it, but I hope I would be able to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. That pastor, by the way, is not demanding that um, people are violent and try and rescue him violently. The true Christian knows that in this life we may find ourselves suffering for our faith and we don't fight back in the same way, at least, that people fight against us. And as I say, there's a whole lot in that to think about, but we need to bear the teaching of Jesus in mind. Second question was also a trap. It was a question about heaven. It was a question about what would happen in heaven. If you go back to uh, Mark chapter 12, the Sadducees were, were wealthy nobles, really. They happened to be religious people as well, but they controlled both the temple council and the state. Religion is always a useful thing to uh, control. They did not believe in heaven or hell or in angels or the resurrection. Pharisees were very, very different. Their main concern seems to have been to preserve their own privileged status as the ruling elite. For them, for this life, it was all there was. Verse 18, the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us, then give them this example, a man's brother dying, leaves a wife but no children. The man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. There were seven brothers. First one married, died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he died leaving no children. It's the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Man, if you're that wife, you have got to be thinking, this is, this is not a good deal at all. Every man she married died. Um, the kind of film, Hollywood would make a film about you entitled Black Widow or something. And, but she married. It's not seven brides for seven brothers. It's one bride for seven brothers, and they all die. And eventually, she dies. None of them left any children. At the resurrection, they say, whose wife will she be? And it's meant to be a really clever question. They're saying, look how ridiculous and how illogical your belief in heaven is. What does Jesus say? Again, an extremely wise answer. He quotes Scripture, the parts of Scripture they did accept. He says, you are in error because you do not know either the Scriptures or the power of God. He shows them that their understanding of Scripture and their understanding of heaven was wrong. He draws the false teachings out of them. Matthew Henry, in his comment on this passage, says this, They did not receive the Scriptures as the Word of God, but set up their own corrupt reasonings in opposition to the Scripture and would believe nothing but what they could see. Note, says Henry, a right knowledge of the Scripture as the fountain whence all revealed religion now flows and the foundation on which it is built is the best preservative against error. Keep the truth, the Scripture truth, and it shall keep thee. Now again, it's so important that you know the Bible and you understand the Bible because when you're hearing different people's teachings, you're able to come to the Bible and say, oh, does the Bible say that? Does the Bible say that? We are constantly being bombarded with false teaching. Let me give you two examples that if you know the Bible, you would be able to answer just from knowing the Bible. One uh, was what I, I heard um, this morning, a sermon where 
the person who was doing the sermon was talking about Elijah, that there was a thunder, there was a, an earthquake, and God was not in the earthquake, and there was a, a, a thunderstorm, and God was not in the thunderstorm, and there was a still small voice, and God was in the still small voice. Now, what that passage is teaching, if you read the Bible and you know the Bible and you read it in context, is a particular story of Elijah. It's not really saying how God speaks to us, and uh, it's suggesting that in Elijah's case, at that point, it was something very quiet, something very different. But the man who was preaching took the passage to say, when there's an earthquake, God's not in the earthquake, so God has nothing to do with it, and God couldn't help it, and God can do nothing about it. And when there's something bad happens to you in your life, it's got nothing to do with God. And it kind of sounds nice, but biblically it's rubbish. Do you really want to worship a God who is impotent, who can do nothing to save or to help? The alternative, people say, is to worship a God who could do something but didn't do it. Yes, but what if that God was good and loving? And what if He knew that even in the most horrible of circumstances all things work together for the good of those who love him. But what the man was teaching this morning was false teaching, false teaching about God, false teaching about the Bible, and making a nonsense of the Scriptures. Or, um, I wouldn't recommend the book, but if you read Rob Bell's uh, Love Wins, it is a, uh, a book that a lot of Christians like and say it's great. It's not great. There's some good stuff in it. Of course there is. Look, even Adolf Hitler did some good things. He built motorways and cars. Those were good things. There's good stuff in, in, in Love Wins. And the issue of raising questions and talking about heaven and hell and the cool title and the great way that Rob Bell presents things, you can all say those are good things. But in actual fact, if you know your Bible, you will realize that the teaching, much of the teaching that comes out of that book is unbiblical. It's heretical. It's wrong. It's implying that Jesus speaking about hell so often was somehow cruel and wrong. It's an attack also on the atonement and so many other things that are central to the Bible. And if you don't know the Bible, you then just say, oh, this is just an argument between Christians, different interpretations. But if you do know the Bible, then you can say, wait a minute, what do you mean there's no hell? That's not what the Bible says. And so you can deal with it and you can answer it. These guys were rejecting something which they said was biblical, and in fact it wasn't. They had a very crude idea of the resurrection. They interpreted it in a very material way, just like the Muslim idea of virgins waiting in paradise. You'll find that mankind has always invented a heaven on earth. Uh, I was reading that the Red Indians saw heaven as a happy hunting ground. The Vikings On the other hand, uh, the Scandinavians, and if you're Scandinavian, this is your heritage, saw Valhalla, heaven, as a place where they could fight all day. And at night, the dead would be raised, and they eat banquets, drinking from cups made from the skulls of their enemies. That was what heaven was for them. The Muslims were largely a desert people living a hard life, and they saw heaven as a place of plenty. But Jesus says, you don't know, do you? It's the Bible that teaches us about heaven doesn't give us a great deal of physical description. If I'm asked what is heaven like, I don't have really much clue. But I know what Jesus says. And what he says here, the Pharisees had ruled that the the woman would belong to the first person she married. But Jesus says, no, no, it's different. 
Don't you realize when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. There's a different biology and a different physics. Questions of sex and marriage just do not arise. We will not be angels, but we will be like them in that we do not marry in heaven. It's a very different kind of life. 1 John 3 verse 3 says this, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. We don't know what we're going to be, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Will we know one another in heaven? Yes, I think the Bible indicates that we will. Will we have the same kind of relationships? No, I don't think that we will. I think that what the Bible indicates is that in heaven, the very best of what we have on earth is only a foretaste of something that is even better. Jesus refers them then to the Scriptures. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he says, you are mistaken. You are badly mistaken. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. He's not saying, I, am, I, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. He's saying, I am the God. And he uses a, an expression which is saying, these men are still alive. Jesus answered everything from the Scriptures. Isaiah 8, verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. You know, that's why it's so important, when you're, whether you're young or older, to learn the Bible and to know the Bible, not in just memorization, but to learn how to apply it so that you can help answer people when they have all these questions. Some people will say, oh, that really limits you if you're limiting your thinking to the Bible. No. It's not a burden and it's not a limitation. It sets us free from the thinking of men and enables us to get the thoughts of God. You read much of the newspapers or magazines or watch the news and hear people's opinions. It can be so depressing and it's so encouraging to come and to read God's Word, God speaking to us. You can read lots of books about what people say about God you can read lots of articles about what people say about the Scriptures, and then you can read the Scriptures themselves, and that's what God says about Himself and what God says about us. He says, you don't know the power of God. We were looking at that this morning, what the power of God is. The power of God is not found from the barrel of a gun or protests or boycotts. Why are we so protective of God? One columnist in a newspaper recently, knowing that there was and is a fundamental difference between Christianity and at least some versions of Islam, spoke of the God of the Bible in terms that were grotesque and deeply upsetting and sick. The newspaper would not have published such language about any other human being, but God doesn't sue and God doesn't strike them dead. And Christians don't go around issuing fatwas, killing people because they blaspheme. But I felt sorry for that man writing that because he does not know the power of God. Jesus tells us 
The question is whether you know the Scriptures and the power of God. If you know only the Scriptures, then you get caught up in texts and become increasingly academic, unrelated to real life. On the other hand, if you go for the power trip and leave out Scripture or push it to the sidelines, you end up being wild and unrelated to the truth of everyday life. It's back to the Sadducees thing. You need both. You need the Scriptures as the power of God. Now, let me finish just by saying this. In in Jesus' teaching in this way, He gives us great examples of how we are to respond. He teaches us a huge amount in, in very few words. I apologize if you were here this morning. I put some things very, very condensed this morning, and um, my wife Annabelle, who's pretty well the best theologian I know, uh, had picked up some stuff straight away and said, well, what about this? What about this? And that was great. And, you know, it was just, there's just so much in the Bible that we we look and we think about and we question. But uh, I think here Jesus teaches us a great deal. But we need to apply it and think about it for ourselves. Think about our relationships with the state. Think about our relationship to God. And I want to suggest, finally, that the the most important thing is, if it is true, as I believe absolutely it is, that Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is the God not of the dead, but of the living. In other words, that there is a resurrection— and that there is a heaven, and that there is a hell, then we need to think about our lives in that context. If you think about your life just now, think about the issues that face you just now. When you go home, if you write a diary, what are you going to write in your diary? What are the things that really bother you? If you're sitting down with someone and they say, open up your heart and you're daft enough to do that, then what are you going to tell them? What are you going to say that the things that really bother you? Is it work? exams, relationships, broken relationships, lack of relationships? Is it hurt and pain? Is it finance? Is it health? All those things are legitimate for us to be concerned about and to think about. But the most important of all is to think about them in the context of the fact that all of us are are dying. We all, I hope, we would want to go to heaven. In order to do so, we need to know the Scriptures and the power of God. We need to know Jesus Christ, of whom the Scriptures testify. We need to come to a living and loving and saving faith in Him. There is no question that is more important than that. May God grant that you and I, when we reflect on that and think about it, we don't believe what the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the materialists and all the people who deny the very existence of God or at least deny the relevance of the Scriptures or ignore the God of the Bible. We don't go, may, may we not go that route, but may the route that you and I go be simply the saying, Lord, I may not understand a lot. I may not be a brilliant theologian. I may not be the smartest person in the world. But I know enough about this that I want to be with Jesus. I want to go with Jesus. I want to serve Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I want to live for Jesus. May that be our genuine and real prayer this evening. Let's pray. 
Thank you, Lord, for your word. Encourage us by it and help us to proclaim it and help us to live it. Lord, we thank you that um, even though we live in a state which often does not, mostly doesn't acknowledge you, that we can pray for those who are in authority, that we can be good citizens in this state, that we can seek God's blessing upon this city, upon um, this country. We thank you, O Lord, that we have a measure of freedom, that we meet here this evening and we are not going to go to jail for it. We do pray for our Iranian brother who is facing death because of his faith and many others who face that situation. And we pray that you would help him and encourage him and protect him. And we ask, O Lord, that you would help us also to bear a, a good witness for you that even when we are despised and laughed at and mocked, that we would still maintain our faith in you. And Lord, we think of heaven. We are so earthbound, we, we can't comprehend what heaven is like. <coughs> and yet we know this, that it will be far better than the best we experience in this life. And we know, O oh Lord, that there is a way the way, and that is you. And we pray that every single person here would commit their lives to follow you and to live for you, that, me, that we may go together to be in glory with you. For we ask it in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org Thanks for listening.